If you know somebody that is skeptical about the way of Jesus, or if you yourself aren't entirely sure what you think of him, the book of James is for you. We're going to be camping out in the book of James uh, basically until the beginning of September. And James is a good book for those of us who are skeptical about the way of Jesus because it was written by someone who was once himself skeptical about Jesus. James is written by the half-brother of Jesus, who for most of his life did not believe Jesus' claims to divinity. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in fact, uh, actively at certain points tried to oppose Jesus' public ministry, as would you. If your sibling tomorrow starts going out in the highways and byways and saying, by the way, guys, I'm God, you also are going to kind of grab them and be like, all right, buddy, time to come home. Been out in the sun a little too long. Uh, James uh, is skeptical. The text in Mark says that he, he and his brothers and sisters were outside trying to seize Jesus and take him home and kind of get this to rest. And yet something happens in James' life that the claims of Jesus don't just become interesting, don't just become uh, unique. By the way, there's a cat in the building, just if you're hearing that uh, glory is in the kitchen. Uh, and so in a box, in a She's no longer in the box, but Glory's in the kitchen. So just so you know, this is just, you know, we're, we're that kind of church now. So it's really hot outside. We didn't want to leave Glory in the car. So Joe and Julia's cat is in the kitchen. So where were we? James. Something happens to James. I just figured I, you should all know that you're not the crazy one, right? Like, what is that sound? It's nothing. Um, that's where you all go, what sound, Kyle? Um, James, something happens to him where... Jesus' claims to divinity don't just become interesting, they become true, and they become true in a powerful way. And it's at the resurrection of Jesus that the claims of Jesus are proven in a powerful way, and James steps across the line of faith and becomes a foundational member of one of the first churches in history in Jerusalem. That church grew and faced opposition by the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities of their day, and so those believers scattered across the known world to places like Greece and Turkey and Italy and Northern Africa, far as away as Spain, and spread the gospel there. And now James is writing a letter to these Christians to help them understand how to live the way of Jesus in their daily lives. And so it's also a letter that is intended to help us put into practice these convictions, these beliefs. It is, it is to help us see that our faith has motion, that being part of the people of Jesus is not a passive act, but requires movement. And so tonight we're looking at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. And as we step into it, I want to just give you a brief warning. As you hear this sermon, you're going to be tempted to think, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. Uh, I wish my husband were here. I wish my wife were here. I wish my kids were here. I wish my friend were here. I wish my boss were here. Here's my instruction to you. You need to stay in your lane tonight. Because this isn't about, uh, this is about you. This is about what God has to say to you tonight. This is not ultimately about what God wants to say to so-and-so, and wouldn't it be nice if they listened to do it? So stand your lane, try to hear these things. When we hear sermons in the third person, when we hear them for someone else, we participate in what Paul would call the form of godliness with none of its power, because we do Christian things, but they don't transform us, and it only transforms us when we're kind of self-applying in these conversations. And so James begins this passage that would tempt you to nudge the person next to you had I not just told you not to do that, and he says this in verse 19. 
18, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. He says, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. So James lays this out. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And this idea is an exact opposition to our very cultural moment right now, because we live in an angry, angry, angry time. You know this if you're a Facebook user, you know this if you watch the news, you know this if you go out to eat, you know that people are angry. And whether you're more a fan of Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, whether you plan to vote Republican, Democrat, or for that matter, independent in November or not vote at all, whether you want the government to restrict guns or leave guns be, or for that matter, whether you chose Charmander, Squirtle, or Barbasaur for your Pokemon Go starter, um, yes, you're mad that everybody else is not thinking the way you do, believing the way you do, and not catching all the Pokemon like you would like them to catch all the Pokemon. We're mad all the time. When it comes down to it, very few of us consistently live into this idea, be quick, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. James is trying to get us out of living in this ready, fire, aim kind of life. James is trying to get us out of the ready, fire, aim kind of life and into this more steady, ready, aim, fire kind of way. He's trying to get us to stop, to pause, to think. And if I could give you one practice to attach to this before we go elsewhere, you need to learn how to ask questions. You need to learn to live your life ending your statements with question marks more often than you end them with periods whether that be in your family, whether that be at work, with your kids, with your parents, with your friends, with your neighbors, even with those who maybe don't know Jesus and you find yourself in their life kind of sharing the gospel with them, questions are more powerful and a more full way to live in this quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry than it is to just keep throwing questions out there, uh, keep throwing statements out there. So James says be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, and he roots this command in verse 20. He says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires. James says that getting angry doesn't do what we think it does. You remember in The Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. You keep getting angry. I don't think it does what you think it does. James says that human anger, by the way, that's an interesting modifier, right? Where James says human anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires. God's anger can function in a whole different way, but he says for us, human anger can't accomplish the righteousness, and that word could also be translated justice that God requires, which is why, Sid, can you go back to the protesters? Too many Christians go to this angry place to get our message across. This is a picture of um, Westboro Baptist. Uh, which, f f side note around this whole Pokemon Go phenomenon, they ended up as a Pokestop or like a gym or something. And so then this, go online and read it. It's actually pretty funny because somebody kind of pranked them pretty good and it kind of turned into this whole thing online this week as all of Pokemon Go is. And if you don't know what Pokemon Go is, it's what, exactly what I was dreaming of when I started playing Pokemon Red when I was in fourth grade. 
Do you know what I mean? Like I can walk around in the real world and catch Pokemon on my phone and do it with my friends. It's super fun. And uh, listen, James says that human anger cannot accomplish or produce the righteousness that God requires. It cannot produce the justice that God requires. See, we go very quickly to boycotting and to protesting and to legislating as the people of Jesus, that we want our vision and really ultimately Jesus's vision for the world, which is just and righteous to be accomplished, not person to person, but legislatively. And when Starbucks makes a certain decision, we're going to not go to Starbucks. And when Target makes a certain decision, we're not going to go to, we're not going to go to Target. I mean, I don't know where if you're really following all the boycotts that Christians say they should be following, like how are you buying anything anywhere? because it all starts to fall apart in a certain moment. And so James says those methods of anger do not, do not produce the righteousness or the justice that God requires and that God desires. It does not accomplish his purposes. Instead, we accomplish that by serving, by caring for the least and last and lost. And we get to that at the end of the text. But James says, here's how God does accomplish his purposes. And he says that in verse 21 through 25. And 21 is the logical bridge from verses 19 and 20 into the next paragraph. James says, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. What does it say? Get rid of all the filth and evil in your life. Not get ticked about all the evil and filth in so-and-so's life. Don't get mad about the evil and filth in another person's life. Don't get all confrontational about how they have all that filth and they need to deal with it. Don't post on Facebook about the evil and filth of a whole group or class in our society. It says, stay in your lane. Get rid of all the evil and filth in your life. How do we do that? By humbly accepting the word that God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. That is God's purpose. It's the righteousness. It's the justice that God wants to produce. It is saving souls that God wants to produce. It does not happen by anger. It does not happen by protest or boycott. It happens when I stay in my lane and I humbly accept, submit, to the word that God has planted in our hearts. And so James talks a little bit more about the word in 20 through 225 with this warning. He says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. Let's read that again, because this is important. Don't just listen to God's word. Do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and forget what you look like. James lays it out really flat. If you come to church and hear God's word, and if you read the Bible and do all these things, and it doesn't actually have a measurable impact in your life, if you hear it and you don't do it, James says, you are a fool. James says you are wasting your time. James says this is stupid. James says you are a plum bumpkin fool if you want, because who on earth looks in a mirror at themselves and then later on sees themselves in a mirror and like jumps because they don't remember what they look like. And that's what James says. When we hear God's word and we look in this mirror and we don't do what it says, we're a fool. James might be kind of summarized. You could summarize it this way. Y'all need to shut up, stop getting angry, stop listening to angry rant, rants, and start listening to God because getting mad and going on Twitter rants doesn't change anything. 
but, ever, but listening to God and doing what he says changes everything. Listen, James is getting into the heart of what it means to be a disciple or apprentice or follower of Jesus, because a follower of Jesus ultimately does two things. They hear God's word, and then they do what he says. They hear God's word and do what he says. And our problem is that's not what we want. We like a little bit of Jesus. We want him to say some nice things to us. We want him to do some nice things for us. And then if he could leave us alone, that would be great. And yet James is kind of plucking us out of a religion for the comfortable into this place of hearing God's word and doing what he says and then midwifing the voice of God in the life of others until they grow attuned to hearing it for themselves and then helping them learn how to do it. This is what discipleship and disciple making is all about. James doesn't leave much middle ground. I want to not leave this without reiterating and reiterating and reiterating. If you hear God's word and don't do what he says, you're a fool. In an age in which, like, we are constantly offended by everything, where everything basically is accompanied by a trigger warning, James does not give a rip about your feelings. James doesn't care. James says, if you hear God's word and don't do what he says, you're a fool. I like this idea of a mirror. It reminded me of um, the first Harry Potter book, um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Harry becomes across a Harry comes across a magical object. It's really hard to see. That's dark. I'm sorry, guys. But Harry comes across a magical object in the book called the Mirror of Erised. And when you look into the Mirror of Erised, it shows you your heart's deepest longing. And so when Harry Potter looks into the Mirror of Erised, uh, he sees his parents, who he never knew because they were murdered when he was just a baby. And so it, he looks into the mirror, and that's kind of what's attempted there. And he sees his parents really for the very first time as he looks in this mirror. His best friend, Ron Weasley, looks in the mirror, and Ron is a middle child, overshadowed by his older sibling's fantastic accomplishments, always wearing hand-me-down clothes and never really amounting to anything. And so Ron looks in the mirror, and he sees himself wearing brand new clothes uh, with the Quidditch Cup trophy and the pin that on his chest that says he's head boy. He sees what he really wants. See, here's the deal. Uh, Erised is desire spelled backwards. J.K. Rowling does this all the time in those books. And uh, here's the trick, though. Uh, the Bible is a mirror of Erised, but it doesn't show us our deepest desires, even though we often try to kind of paint our deepest desires onto Scripture. What ultimately happens is that the mirror of Erised of Scripture is showing us God's deepest desires for us. That's what we see in Scripture. It is this vision that Jesus has for the true humanity and what it means for us to follow him. And that's why I love what James says in verse 25. He says, if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and you don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. That is a tremendous verse. He says, first of all, you've got to look carefully. That's why we make a big deal out of the Bible at Regen, because like, I need to look at this carefully. I need to unpack it a little bit. I need to give it some mental attention. I need to, Timothy talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. There, there is a mental, intellectual, spiritual, emotional exercise that takes us beyond just the mere reading of words to thinking about what they say. It's kind of like high school English class, but with eternal, eternal consequences. I have to think about what's said. I need to know what the author means. I need to know what it's intending to do in my life. I need to look carefully at it. And then he says, 
look carefully into that perfect law that sets you free. And if you were with us for Exodus, you get this, that in the law, God is laying out not commands and restrictions. He's laying out a life. He's laying out a way. And so we're to look at this way that ultimately does what? It sets us free. This book, this book does not shackle. This book does not suppress or oppress or chain you down. This book sets us free, James says. And if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. And let me tell you something, guys. We don't read the Bible. We don't, when we hear, when we hear the word blessing, we materialize it and we monetize it. So we think blessing must mean something monetary and it must mean something materially. Guys, God could give a rip about what you drive, he could give a rip about your house and he could give a rip about your clothes. But here is the blessing that comes when we look carefully at the law that sets you free. You get more of God. Guys, if you're doing anything on the way of Jesus for any reason other than I want to know him and I want to know him more, if we're doing anything other than that, we're missing the point because he himself is the prize. He himself is the treasure. And that's why our most fundamental and enduring question as a church is, how do I live a life that constantly establishes Jesus as my highest treasure? That's what scripture does. It, it, that is the blessing is that I just get more of him and I get to be more like him. And so just an encouragement, please, intentionally carve out time in your life to be near God and his word. And if you're using the Bible app, or, and you can always go online and find us after this, um, we dropped an 11-day uh, Bible study plan on the book of James into the app. I mean, that's pretty nifty, right? And uh, I don't know why Christian stock photography, when you go look at this, it's like a guy in a field doing like this. There has never been a moment uh, in my worshiping with Jesus and walking with Jesus life that I found myself outside just doing this because I don't, I'm not. Although it does remind me of a friend that I brought home from college once who did spend some time in the field next door to our house doing that and got yelled at by the neighbor. Uh, uh, so, you know, David, so don't, you know, David Ulrich, if you're listening, we haven't talked in years, but we now all know don't worship in fields uh, by yourself, but get into the book. Like, that's my heart. That's why we elevate it so much here at Regen, because it's a big deal. So James, J keep in mind that James is talking about, we don't want to lean into anger because it doesn't accomplish God, what God wants. Here's what does accomplish what God wants. What accomplishes what God wants is when we hear his voice and do what he says, when we hear God's word and we obey it. And the end result of that is ultimately providing what God wants, which James explains on verses 26 through 27. If you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans, and the widows and their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Your religion is rendered null and void simply on the basis of how you speak. God does not care about what you sing. God does not care about what you, where you come to church. God does not care if you care for widows and orphans if your speech invalidates that. 
Jesus says this tremendously terrifying thing, and I think Matthew chapter 13 or 14 or 15, he says, you will be judged by every useless and idle word that comes out of your mouth. And as an extrovert, that scares the crap right out of me. Because in, I imagine heaven, there's, in heaven, you need to understand, we all get to heaven and there is a judgment. Some unto life and some unto death. And that means, like, I don't know how this is going to work. Like, do I, like, get called up in front of the heavenly host? And, like, sometimes I wonder then, is there going to be, like, a screen like that, but bigger? And it's just going to be a credit reel of every worthless thing I've ever said. We'll be there at least 150,000 years by the time all this is said and done. He says, the way we speak makes our religion worthless. There is this anxiety, and that's where our anger comes from. The Bible always says that anger is a secondary emotion, that we are angry because of. We are in an anxious time, which is why we're in an angry time. You see what I'm saying? Out of our anxiety, we smack each other. We like hit. Uh, and, and that anxiety makes us feel like the mission of God is jeopardized in the world. We feel like ISIS jeopardizes the mission of Jesus in the world. We feel like, some of us feel like whoever is a president or in power of some kind jeopardizes the mission of the world and what, mission of Jesus in the world. And what James says jeopardizes the mission of God in the world. What jeopardizes our ability as a church to interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus to reach the next person with the gospel is this. What jeopardizes God's mission is when people overhear you speaking negatively about somebody else uh, that you love and that goes to church with you when, you hear, when they hear you ne speaking negatively of them over lunch in Panera. What jeopardizes God's mission is when you're rude to a waiter or a waitress. What jeopardizes after they've seen you like pray. Like either one of two things, don't pray and be stingy or pray and leave 40% tip. I'm not kidding. Like, don't let people hear church Jesus, church Jesus, and then, like, leave a tract that looks like a $100 bill. Don't do that. What jeopardizes God's mission is a mouth that complains and murmurs, is divisive, that spreads rumors, and that doesn't assume the best about others. What jeopardizes God's mission is a parent whose mouth mocks their children far more than it encourages and builds them up. What jeopardizes God's mission is a, words, is a spouse's words in a fight, what jeopardizes God's mission is a racist comment, even when made in private. What jeopardizes God's mission in the world is my mouth. God has seen people worse than ISIS come and go. He has seen people and kings come and go. His greatest, outside of Satan himself, his greatest enemy is really what I have to say. And so actually James 3 is a text all about that, and Danny will preach that in a couple weeks. I sometimes wonder if the reason that we like to complain about the president and ISIS and other things is because they get us off the hook. Like if, if there's some political movement or some terrorist movement that's opposing the work of Jesus, then I'm off the hook for how I have to behave. But the biggest problem that we have as the people of Jesus is actually being and living into the vision of the people of Jesus. The number one reason, or no, not the number one, the number four reason that people outside the church in Trumbull County aren't part of the church is because of conflict and grumbling and divisiveness within churches in Trumbull County. They're like, nah, don't care. They're mean, they're nasty. In other words, James says, it's about our mouth. 
Now that said, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you, which is his vision when he says, God, human anger does not produce, the righteousness that God desires, and that in verse 20, the righteousness or justice that God desires is further defined by verse 27, caring for orphans and widows in distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Now there's a holiness piece, right? There's a personal managing my own house piece, refusing to let the world corrupt you. When, the, when it talks about the world in scripture, it means like this system of thinking and beliefs and kind of the way that the world works out here. We are supposed to represent an entirely different kind of way of thinking and being and relating with one another, and we want to keep that separate. Now, sometimes then the movement becomes, I'm just going to hide inside this wall with other people like me because we don't want that stuff to get in here. But that's also what James, not what James says. James says that pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows. And it doesn't mean we care for orphans, that we care for widows and we're done. It means we are responsible as the people of Jesus. We are responsible as the people of Jesus for caring for the marginalized, the voiceless, the wounded, the trampled down in our society that there is no, here's, here's the thing that we've done is we've passed that off. But God, the church has always been God's plan A to handle all sorts of matters of injustice. And so the church should be first in line when it comes to say, I was in a nursing home this week and uh, every time I've ever walked into a nursing home, there are just rooms full of people just like in tremendous loneliness and it smells and I think, there is a marginalized group of our society. Um, a marginalized or voiceless group in our society are the unborn. A marginalized or voiceless group in our society are victims of sexual abuse. A marginalized or silent uh, group in our, our people in poverty, our people in addiction, our veterans facing PTSD and need tremendous help. I mean, here's the problem, guys. There's too much to do. Not that we're called to have to do all of it. There's refugees and racism, and I mean, let's just make the list. But we have to say at least we're trying to do one or two things well. Do you know what I'm saying? Because pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and the widows in their distress. It means finding the people in distress, and that ultimately cannot be, James says, accomplished by anger. It's accomplished by hearing God's voice and doing what he says. Listen. Rick, my boss, well, formerly my boss, now just my friend, I suppose. <clears throat> His dad always told this, said this thing where everybody brightens a room. It's just that some people do it by leaving and some people do it by entering. You know what I'm saying? Listen, scripture, if you're hearing God's word and doing what it says, even if you're not, you're making an impact on people's lives. It's just a matter of if you're brightening their room when you're entering it or when you're leaving it. It's just a matter of whether the impact you're making on them is positive or not. If you're hearing God's word and doing what he says, somebody around you is going to notice. If you're hearing God's word and does, doing what he says, it's going to begin to make a measurable impact, not just in like some friend group stuff, but if we're serious, say, as a community of people about hearing God's voice and doing what he says, it's going to leave a measurable impact in our community. Here's the goal, Regen, that if we shut down tomorrow nobody, we would be weepy, but that people around us would be weepy. Do you see what I'm saying? That we are making such a measurable and added benefit to our, our community and our society that people don't want us to go away because, and they would pay us to do some things because we're better at it than they are. That, that's the goal. 
because pure and blameless, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows. That's the justice and the righteousness which God wants to produce. Here's what we don't like about God. Let me end this. Here's what we don't like about God. So James 1, the first half of the chapter, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds, for the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, when it does its work, will leave you complete and mature, lacking in nothing. See, we like to know, we like it when Jesus comes to us to comfort. We're a big fan. We love the Hallmark cards. We love the shareable social media with flowers and a scripty font. We love the pretty stuff. And then... I mean, no sooner does James end with like, so your suffering is not in vain, this is not in the end of the story, take heart. No sooner does he end that with, he now is all up in my grill about stop being lazy, stop being mad, don't be complacent, get rid of the filth in your own lives. What we don't like about God is that he moves far too quickly from invitation to challenge. That he moves far too quickly from, from like compassion to like, I don't know, up in my faceness. We don't like that about God, and yet this is the God that James presents to us. This is the God that James presents to us, which is basically get up off your tuchus and get to work. James says, faith without works is dead. (laughs) That's what we don't like about God. And yet, and yet, and yet, when we hear God's voice and we do what he says, that's the blessing. That's why we get into it. That's why we're there. And let me pray and we'll take communion together. Father, your giftedness uh, toward us, your, your blessingness toward us is, is astounding and the gift that you wanna give us is yourself. Forgive us for how we chase after other things, how we want you and other things and instead uh, attune our hearts to crave you and you only. Um, use this meal to do that. Jesus, help us to hear your word and do what you say. Help us to be challenged and convicted and equipped to live as you would have us live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Every week at Regen, we take communion together. Uh, And we do this because we know that hearing God's voice and doing what he says cannot just be accomplished by like buckling down, grabbing myself by my bootstraps and getting to work. That grace... God's very own empowerment and presence must infuse all of that so that it becomes meaningful and effective, that that was what will produce what God requires. And so every week we come to this table where Jesus said to his closest friends and disciples on the night when he was betrayed, he took this bread and he broke it. And he offered it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. He said, because this is my body, which is broken for you. See, here's the terrifying thing. Ours is a broken way. We'd like if the bread could stay whole. But Jesus says no. The same way also later in the supper, he took a cup and he offered it to his disciples and he said, this cup will produce the righteousness that I desire. By establishing a new relationship between you and me, it's a contract and agreement written with my blood. And my blood is poured out for you and for all people and forgiveness of sin. See, the other thing that we don't like is that there's something to be forgiven. And yet Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're going to eat this meal together. We're going to encounter the presence of Jesus together. And so, um, Vanessa and Lindsay, would you help me out? 
Um, you can just come down the center aisle, I'll rip you off a piece of the bread, and then you dip it in the cup, and you can move back. Um, but let me bless this meal, and you guys can come while I bless it. Father, pour out your spirit on these simple gifts of bread and cup, that they might become to us the body of Christ, and the blood of Christ, not by some magical voodoo, but just by drawing near to us through this meal, that your grace would be shared with us as we hear your word and do what it says. Unite us to be the body of Christ, uh, to have a religion that is genuine and pure in your sight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.